the biggest creator nice problem to have for me is now that I have 10,000 email subscribers, I'm scared to publish to them. I feel like every subscriber I add raises the bar of quality that I have to hit before I feel comfortable hitting that publish button. And that means that I create less and less as I grow my audience larger and larger. And, you know, it would took talking to someone who really said that, like, you know, like, if they don't want what you make, screw them. You're just filtering down to a more dedicated audience that does love you that you'll finally feel comfortable towards. So if that means churning half of your audience, that's their problem, not mine. Josh Constein was the single most cited tech journalist for four years, from 2016 until 2020, according to TechMeme. He's now an investor and head of content at SignalFire. What I love about Josh is that he carves his own path. He's a critical thinker, and he forms his own opinions, despite what the world around him is pushing him toward. In school, he didn't find a master's program that he liked, so he invented his own. Cyber sociology, he called it. And he did that because he saw an emerging technology company launch during his time in college called the Facebook, and he had a feeling that it was going to be a big deal. That was in 2005. Josh started writing about Facebook immediately, and by 2015, he worked his way to becoming editor-at-large for TechCrunch. He's written over 3,500 articles on social companies and other startups and has an encyclopedic knowledge of the last 20 years of tech. Josh and I talked about the emerging creator-CEO, the metaverse, and his struggles as a writer and creator himself. I'm Jack Conti, CEO and co-founder of Patreon, and this is the Creator Economy Podcast. Josh Constein, welcome to the Creator Economy Podcast. So happy to have you here. Thank you, Jack. It's amazing to be here. You're one of my favorite creators and founders, so I feel honored to get to talk about the topic that neither of us will ever shut up about. <laughs> one of the first things I wanted to ask Josh was, having built such an incredible career in journalism, why switch to investing? So my favorite part of interviews was always after I closed my laptop at the end of interviewing a founder, when we just start to like talk shop, it wouldn't be me asking questions. We'd just be going back and forth on, oh, here's what I think the product could do to, to improve. Or have you thought about talking about yourself like this? And that was my favorite part. And it was often the founder's favorite part too. So I started to feel like uh, I would love to help them directly. And meanwhile, I'd started to do a lot of public speaking around the world. I ended up doing like 200 gigs in 18 countries talking about how to pitch startups, how to think about the concept of pitch craft. So I ended up coming into SignalFire to, to talk to their portfolio companies. And they said it was one of the more valuable things we'd done for them lately. And so the fund came asking if I wanted to come and join. And, you know, I'd been exploring potential jobs in venture for a little while. And I found that a lot of funds, there's a lot of bureaucracy. It was a lot of like being an understudy for a long time. And a lot of them wanted me to kind of give up my voice, to stop being myself, to stop talking publicly, to stop taking bets, 
to be kind of like and you know Aaron Burr in in Hamilton it's like smile more and like talk less right and that wasn't me I couldn't do that I couldn't like go into the diligence dungeon and just like work behind the scenes like I'm I'm a public person I got a big voice I will not shut up ever as you can probably already tell and so <laughs> I wanted a fund that wanted that as a skill rather than as a liability you know what's so funny about that Josh is I learned that lesson too it, it just in the early days as a founder when I was first pitching Patreon. I went in thinking like, oh, I got to put on my business hat now. Like I got to show the deck and the cohort analysis and like the up and to the right chart and explain, you know, the, you know, the product and the vision and like the stats and all that. That's kind of the mentality that I went in with. And I went in with like a wannabe MBA deck, you know, on <laughs> Patreon. That's not you. <laughs> and it's not fucking me. And, and, and honestly, like we didn't raise money. Like nobody wanted in. And then I made this shift. I went in and instead of pitching the NBA deck, I went in and I told them how the company actually got started, which was this crazy 10-minute story of me making this robot music video by myself in my studio. I spent 10 grand on the music video, maxed out two credit cards, and came out the other end with nothing and except for $150 in ad revenue. And I was like, <laughs> this fucking sucks. And I finally made that the pitch. And we got funding. As soon as I was just like, look, here's who I am. Here's what we're doing. Here's the problem I'm actually solving instead of trying to kind of put on someone else's clothes. It was such an important moment for me as a – like just as a person and such a reminder that's like, hey, you're a person. Be yourself. You're solving real problems. Just go do that, you know? I think – Passion is the underlying factor behind grit, and grit is everything when it comes to building businesses. And it's why I think journalists and investors really resonate with founders who are deeply passionate, like most maniacally, like have a bloodlust for revenge against this problem that's wronged them, especially when they're the first customer. It's like they can feel that if you're this riled up about it, if you're willing to get excited about it, you won't quit. That's what people look for. And I think when founders start to be themselves, and and let that passion show through. They they get they see the results, and everybody wants to crowd around them and support that vision. Okay, when you're looking for founders, you're looking for somebody to potentially invest in. What attributes are you looking for, and how do you know if this founder has the grit and the passion to slog it out for ten years and build something meaningful and important in the world? I think the most important factor is founders who truly understand the problem that they're solving, that they're not being opportunistic. They're not saying, oh, I heard there's a problem over here. I bet I could build a big business and get rich solving it. But instead that they feel that, you know, that affliction personally. You know, my favorite story is Jan Kuhn from WhatsApp. You know, his family moved from the Ukraine to the United States when he was very young and they couldn't afford long distance phone calls. And so he felt super isolated from his family, but he didn't get it. It was just data moving over a line. Why should it cost multiple dollars a minute to make a long distance phone call? And so he went on to build WhatsApp, a free messaging tool. So everybody in the world could stay in touch with their family. And when he got bought by Facebook for $19 billion, he signed the acquisition papers on the steps of the welfare office where his family used to collect checks. Like that's the kind of grit and like revenge story that you're looking for, I think, in a great founder. And so first off is ones that are willing to get out of the building, talk to customers, are obsessed with hearing every angle of why people feel like there's a problem that needs to be solved. That's a, a huge part of it. And I think the second most important part is that, you know, building a great product is, is important. Being able to build a great team is important. Having that kind of gravitas and that passion that you can get other people to sacrifice that, you know, 
pesky thing called work-life balance uh, or forego like a, you know, a sure thing salary at some giant tech company to come work for a startup on something that really doesn't exist. And they have to believe in this vision of the future. And if you can convince other people to get excited about that, then you're going to be able to recruit the best talent in the world. And it won't just be about the founder. It'll be about the team that they can build. And I think the third thing is about customer acquisition. The world is getting crowded with tech startups and just having a good idea is not enough. You need to know how to grow it. And when a founder says like, oh, we're going to buy a bunch of ads to get people to use it. I'm like, why don't you build something that just grows itself? You know, I think so. What I look for is a is really savvy and creative customer acquisition strategies, things that are going to help a company grow quickly without spending a ton of money. And oftentimes, it's about building products that grow themselves. It's not a vague concept of, of what to do with it, or that there are shareable moments that people want to be able to show off what they're doing in the world. People are naturally very narcissistic. Let them export a video that shows all the things they've done in the app. Let them create a collage of the moments that they've shared with their friends on this app. You know, that those kind of exportable moments, I think, are so critical to growing an, an app. And you saw how TikTok used that. You know, every other app in the world wouldn't let you, like, even save the photos or save the videos. They purposefully let you export them put a watermark on them and you end up seeing TikToks everywhere across the internet and everyone, every time you see one, you think, I want to go check out where this is coming from. And it just helped TikTok grow so fast without having to pay for advertising, even though they paid for a lot of advertising in the early days. They did. They spent a ton <laughs> of money A ridiculous amount of money. But I think it was eventually they learned that like there's probably a more sustainable way to do this. And so com companies that are willing to look for the creative path forward for growth rather than just throwing money at the problem are other things that I really look for. Josh makes a great point about creative growth strategies for companies. And I wish I could tell you that when Patreon launched, there was some perfectly designed genius strategy behind the whole thing, but there was not. Both Sam and I had a general sort of broad idea about how the platform would help creators, but I at least didn't realize that built into the product, there was this incredible growth loop that is now responsible for over 90% of Patreon's growth. When I launched on Patreon as the first creator on the platform, I went to my audience on YouTube and Facebook and Twitter, and I told all my fans that I was launching. That day, thousands of my subscribers and followers visited my Patreon page. And a portion of those people turned out to be creators themselves. When they saw that I was using Patreon to run a kick-ass membership business for myself and that I was bringing in thousands of dollars per month, they decided to launch a Patreon page for themselves. And then when those creators launched, a portion of their fans were creators too, and this cycle just repeated and repeated. That cycle is responsible for over 90% of Patreon's growth. When we survey patrons, over 75% of them say they joined Patreon because a creator they love asked them to. And over two-thirds of creators we survey say they found out about Patreon from another creator that they follow. Viral growth is a double-edged sword because while it doesn't cost a lot in sales and marketing spend, it is a bit more difficult to control. But at the end of the day, this is the loop that was responsible for Patreon's growth. So speaking of creativity then, and you know, companies like TikTok, you've already started investing in what people are now calling creator economy companies. At Signal Fire also released this wonderful report 
with an estimate that there are around 50 million creators in the world. I wanted to ask you about that number specifically. When you say there are 50 million creators in the world, wh- what is a creator? Because I think a lot of companies are starting to use the word creator, but we're all kind of saying different things. And so in that report, when you say there are 50 million creators, what are the attributes of these people specifically that you're talking about that you think makes them a creator? So I think there are three classes. There's creatives who are people who just make things. They're not making them to build an audience or to make money. They're just building, making them because they want to share them. And that's most people who use social media are effectively creative. Then there are creators, people who are making it their identity. And for them, it's about building an audience long term, hopefully even building a profession out of their passion and that they have a specific perspective or a thing that they want to contribute to the world. And they're going to do it consistently over time. And it's you know taking that creatorship uh, professionally and thinking of it as something that they a craft that they want to improve on over time. And the, the idea that you have a two-way dialogue with your audience is what makes you not just an artist, but a creator. And I think that's also where you get the third class, which I think of as celebrities. Celebrities are also creative, but they have a one-way relationship with their fans. They just broadcast to them. You can think of like movie stars. Most movie stars, incredibly popular, sometimes very creative, but the only way that they interact with their fan base is through the movies that they make and through interviews with, you know, with press. But they don't have a very two-way street for feedback. They're not forging an actual relationship where you feel like the creator knows that you exist, especially for top fans. You know, if you if you invest money and time and want to be the biggest fan of someone, you hope that they know that you exist. And for celebrities, they don't. They don't know you exist. But for creator, creators know their biggest fans and they take that feedback from them to improve their creative process. In essence, the audience becomes a part of the creator. They become the digital on their hands that are helping them make what they love. What is your sense of where all of this is going? What is this going to be like 10 years from now, 20 years from now? What do you think life is going to be like as a creator? Where do you think, uh, where do you think the, the, the world is going with regard to creativity? Where do you think products and services are going? What is it going to be like in 10, 15 years? If we were to zoom 20 years or 10 or like you know, 20 years is like inconceivable, like who knows? But, you know, um, if I had to think of like where the creator world is going to be in 10 years, I think it's going to look a lot more like each creator owning their own medium and format and channel rather than thinking of it as being like a profile on a network. Because I think you know, we needed those networks for some early discovery. And I think there will always be social networks that are valuable for like the top of funnel discovery where, you know, you didn't know about this person, the algorithm recommends them to you, you get to like them. But if you really want to like consume their content diligently, and if you and if they want to monetize you, it's going to have to be on their own channel. And so that's why I think we're seeing things like Spore.Build, where you know you get to own, you own your own website on the open web, no taxes, no you know no algorithms. It's your it's your platform. You choose what you want to put on it. You own the email addresses and phone numbers of your audience members, and you can't have them taken away from you. Uh, so I think owning the means of distribution will be a huge huge part of it. Uh, I think that uh, these these creator collectives, where creators provide the services that the former publishers and distributors 
leaders used to provide. That will be a huge part of it, that they will, will replace hierarchical systems with much more flat organizations that are self-governed. Um, I think that'll be a big part of it. Uh, I think that the ability to solve chicken and egg problems for content marketplaces uh, with with cryptocurrency has a lot of potential. So if you think of something like how Spotify got started, it was really difficult if you have no listeners and no musicians to build both sides of that marketplace because the musicians want audience. They're not going to come anywhere and invest time unless there's an audience. And the audience doesn't want to be there if there's no content. But you know, you see things like Audius, this uh, cryptocurrency music project, and they said, we'll give tokens to creators who are early on the platform. And then the idea is if you're if you help make the platform more valuable, the tokens grow in value over time. And so you can basically incentivize people to say, how do we get somebody on a platform when there's no audience? Tokenomics can really solve some of these problems. And I think that that's going to be a big part of the future as well. Uh, and similarly, I think you know we're seeing this rise of cult formation. And I think that that will get much more intense. The idea of being a multi-skew creator where you are kind of helping people define their own identity through who you are as a creator is going to become bigger and bigger. And you know, we saw this all What do you mean multi-skew? Uh, so a, a multi-skew creator is one that sells things in many different mediums. And so rather than, you know, similar to the idea of trying to diversify your means of, of revenue and distribution, you're trying to be, a, 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 you know, live across a bunch of mediums because there's only so much music that somebody's going to listen to, but they'll read, they'll watch videos. They'll communicate and chat with people. They'll play games. They own objects in the physical world. And if you can operate across all of those different channels, you can be a much bigger part of your of somebody's life more than if you stuck in one medium, even if you were their favorite musician of all time, there's only so much time they spend listening to music. And so being a multi-skew creator means that you have a lot more opportunity to develop a really deep relationship with the fans, as well as be able to monetize a lot more deeply. Our research confirms Josh's opinion that creators are becoming multi-skew, as he calls it. At Patreon, we call those creators multi-hyphenate. They're podcasters who launch a blog, or video creators who launch a podcast, or musicians who become YouTubers. Patreon is seeing way more growth in multi-hyphenate creators than single category creators. For example, at the beginning of 2021, we saw 66% year-over-year growth in podcasts, and 70% year-over-year growth in video. But there was 112% year-over-year growth in creators who made both podcasts and video compared to the year before. Multi-hyphenate creators are growing really fast. So do you think there are going to be companies emerging that essentially provide infrastructure to creators to to operate across those SKUs or are creators going to do that independently as well? No, I think that you you will see this. You're already seeing this like replacing some of the big record labels with digital management agencies, which say, okay, it's not about distributing CDs and FM radio promotion as much anymore. It's about getting you onto Spotify playlists and building your community and you know making products uh, and like merchandise that people actually like. That's how artists are actually earning money now. And I think you're going to see more of these kind of organizations rise up. And some of them will look like traditional managers, but I think a lot more 
more of them will look like infrastructural tools where you'll say, hey, we get economies of scale by hiring the best merchandise designers in the world. We have 10 different ones and we help you pair you with the merchandise designer that gets your ethos, your aesthetic, and then you guys collaborate to make a merch product that fits what your audience will really want. And we help you pull your audience to actually ask them what they want from your merch. And so it's interactive and they feel a sense of ownership in what you're making. You know, you're already seeing this with the concept of creators becoming founders. That a creator, you know, if, if 100 years ago being a musician meant just playing guitar, then eventually it was like, oh, I have to be a television star too. I got to be able to go on the Ed Sullivan show. And, you know, if I want to be able to be like the, you know, the Beatles, uh, you know, and then eventually I have to be able to be an actor. I have to be able to go on MTV and make now music Now you got to be a community builder. Right. And now, exactly. And what are the new things? You need to be a community builder. You need to be a merchandise designer. You have to be a data scientist. And I think people are going to start to either, like creators will become the founders of their own media organizations, contracting services from those experts, people who are just data scientists. And that's all they do. And they are, they are the virtuoso of data science. It's the way that the artist is a virtuoso of music. And I think what will be different is that instead of it being the record label boss is the real head or the manager the creator is the, the CEO, head. the creator is the CEO, but they have a COO that takes as much of the logistics off their plate so they can focus on doing what they really love. Uh, another big part of it, I think, is the finance world. You know, right now, if you, it is hilarious. If you are a creator and you make videos for the internet and you want to get a loan, you go to the bank and you say, hey, uh, I make... $500,000 a year selling videos on the internet. Right it happened now. to me the bank wouldn't give me a loan right. to get a house. It was ridiculous. The bank didn't understand who I was or what I was making. I completely agree. The financial institutions of the world are not set up to interface with this emerging creative class. They don't understand them. Exactly. And so I think you're going to see the rise of more businesses like Carrot, uh, K-A-R-A-T, and they make a credit card for creators where they, instead of looking at your, your how much money you have in the bank, they look at your YouTube ad revenue. They look at your Patreon revenue. They look at your engagement rate, not just your follower count, but how many of those followers actually engage with you. And they use that as an underwriting model to say, to give you a credit limit and they give you a credit card. So then while you're waiting for your ad revenue or even waiting for your Patreon subscription money to come in from the next month, you can charge video production and editors and all the services and travel and everything you need to make your content to your credit card. And it's effectively working capital for creators. And so I think you'll see a lot more infrastructure there. And I think that that over time, you'll also see creators wanting to become investors themselves. I think naturally, if you want to own the means of distribution, yes, you can own your email addresses, but wouldn't it also be cool to own a piece of the, you know, the tools that you actually use to distribute that content? And it makes a lot of sense for those founders to want you to invest in their company because you're the best, you're their first customers. So it might be built in customer acquisition. You're going to have incredible feedback because you're going to be directly incentivized to actually help the company succeed and get bigger. You are an aspirational customer where it will draw in other customers because they say, oh, if this great big creator that I love uses this product or like is an investor in this product, it must be legit. And you're going to also see that creators realize that similar to sports stars, some of them will not have a lifelong career in creating, that not all types of creators are going to be able to do what they do forever. Certainly some of the ones, newsletter writers, you could probably write a newsletter into your 80s. But if you're like a, a fashion you know, uh, you know, model or a, uh, you know, some types of, of other types of creators, you, know, you aren't going to look like that, act like that, have that kind of energy for your whole life. And so how do you start to build a nest egg for yourself? How do you build a pension for creators? And I think it's in investing 
and equity into startups that will that are the ones that you know best and that have a special uh, or where there's a real advantage to having you on their cap table so that you get in at those early valuations where you can actually make a real fortune. So I think that you're going to see the professionalization of creators as investors. I'm fascinated by Josh's vision of the future creator as the CEO of their own business. My band, Pomplamoose, which is the band I started with my wife in 2008, is at this point more like a media company than it is like the traditional version of a band. Pomplamoose produces a new music video basically every week, and doing that is a ton of work. It was too much for just me and Natalie. And we didn't want to give 25% of our business to a manager, so we decided to hire employees. The band now has about four full-time employees with 401k matching, health benefits, and the full thing. And we work with somewhere between 15 and 20 additional contractors, camera operators, graphic designers, sound engineers, to make the whole production work. And Natalie, my wife, runs the whole company. She's no longer just a creator, she's a CEO. And it works. Pomplamoose has over a million subscribers on YouTube. We get over 6 million views per month, and our songs are going to get streamed over 75 million times this year on Spotify. The band is on course to have top-line revenue of about $750,000 in 2021. And while we end up spending most of that to pay for production and for our team, it still represents enough for my wife to have a salary as a full-time creator and musician. I know a lot of creators who don't want this model and they feel like it wouldn't be a fit for them. But I also know a lot of creators who are absolutely moving in this direction. The larger trend here is essentially the advent of the creative SMB. Small business creativity is real and it's viable. While you used to have to essentially win the lottery to make a living as an artist, there's a new model emerging. And I think that makes it a really exciting time to be a creative person. So speaking of what's around the corner in the next 10 years, Facebook recently defined the metaverse, at least in a, in a paragraph or so, and what they see coming around the corner. And they established this $50 million research fund to, to build it, quote unquote, responsibly. Um, I'm curious. What percentage of their quarterly profits is that? <laughs> like point zero. So you don't buy it. You just answered my question. I guess the, the question for you is, do you, do you buy this future of human interaction? What do you think the metaverse is? How fast do you think it's coming? I think there's a natural trend towards more vivid and immersive media formats. You know, we saw this with st starting with text and then photos and videos and then gaming and the rise of gaming. And now if you think of creatorship as being that two-way street, it's more immersive and interactive than, you know, a video by a, a, a five-minute video by a creator is more immersive than a five-minute video by a celebrity because you actually might be able to interact with them and influence what happens next. And so I think we're on that natural train towards more immersiveness. And so I think if you're at home, why would you want, you know, to imbibe media only on this like tiny little dimension right in front of your face when it could be all around you? Wouldn't you rather be skydiving than look 
looking out of an airplane window. And I think that's like how you could think of me- media today. It's like on a small screen right in front of you versus being all around you and being almost participatory. So I do think that the metaverse is the eventual f- space. And what I think is really cool there is that the concept of creating a venue becomes a thing because there's land, there's space, there's physical dimensions in the metaverse. And so you'll find a new form of curator that emerges. And even if they don't make the primary art that you're consuming there, they get to make the venue. And so I'm very excited about the concept of curators in the metaverse. According to analyst Mark Mahaney, Meta is on track to sell more than 8 million Quest 2s in their first year. So you you believe that we're going there. How quickly? And I guess the answer, the reason I'm asking that question is because you know, Facebook launched Quest 2 at some point, 2020, October or something like that. And since then, I think they've sold somewhere around 8 million Quest 2s. They acquired Oculus eight years ago. <laughs> Why do you think it's not catching on as quickly as the last computing platform that took on, which is the the, the mobile device? What do you think is the big what, – what do you think is going on? I mean, one of them fits into every crevice of your life and allows you to never have a moment of solace or thought to yourself. Every single moment, if you are craving dopamine, you can find it in your phone. And so mobile phones adapted to our lives. I think our lives will have to adapt to virtual reality. The phone is not going anywhere. And anyone who tells you that augmented reality glasses are going to replace the phone has never taken a selfie. It's like, how do you, if you can't take a selfie or video chat with something, it can't be the future of computing in my opinion. Uh, But when the best AAA video games start moving into virtual reality, when the best cultural experiences and concerts start to live in virtual reality, you're going to see the, you know, the, 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 the shift happen a lot faster. And so I think that is coming. I think the, a core tenet of the metaverse is portability, is the idea that when you purchase something, when you make something, it's yours. It doesn't, it doesn't belong to the company whose platform you're playing within or experiencing within. You have sovereignty over it. You have sovereign ownership. And that and then portability, the ability to take that thing and move it somewhere else. That will be where you'll see the first manifestations of the metaverse. And so what you're already starting to see is like, you know, Bitmoji, Snapchat's avatar system, is starting to be integrated into games. So you can bring your personal avatar of yourself that you've made and you can play as it in a bunch of different games. Not just that you make your own character in every single game by itself and every game starts with a, 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 a character builder, but you can transport the, the character you already have. And the natural next step is like, well, if I bought a cool Gucci belt for my, my character in one world, I would hope to be able to wear it everywhere else. Uh, Dolce & Cabana just released their first NFT collection. And one of the things is a physical golden crown. But with the physical crown, you also get the virtual version with it designed for portability so you can actually use it across the metaverse. So you get to own that real crown in the metaverse, not just in real life. The Dolce & Gabbana auction broke luxury fashion NFT records and did about $8 million worth of sales in Ether. I'm already now can more spending more time connecting with people in a digitized manner than I am uh, in a human in-person manner. Um, so it's not just time spent. It's not just level of immersion. It's also this sense of portability. But why 
wait for a third dimension. Why is the third dimension a catalyst for portability and interoperability across platforms when it comes to identity? I don't think it's the concept of virtual reality or the 3D, like spatial sense that is going to make the the metaverse have to happen. It's actually going to happen sooner than that. And it's because of the concept of an intermediary software platform, which is effectively what blockchains work as. You can think that normally if you wanted to make something interoperable, a game developer would have to you know, custom design the interoperability with every other game, a million different properties. They would never be able to support it. But instead, the idea is that you you can make something interoperable with the Ethereum blockchain, and then the other thing makes their game interoperable with the Ethereum blockchain, and you can pass things through that chain in between them. And so it's creating this intermediary layer with some immutable ledger which shows sovereign ownership uh, that allows people to effectively create portability. And it's those, it's again, it's those three elements. It's sovereign ownership, portability, and interoperability. But I think for most people, it'll probably be tough to, to really visualize or understand the value until you see great cultural and entertainment moments moving into virtual reality in the metaverse. And I think, you know, the Fortnite concerts are a great first step in that direction. What do you think portability, sovereign ownership, and interoperability mean for creators? When it comes to the metaverse, I think the opportunity is allowing people to saying, I'm not just going to give you a product that you own in the real world, we're going to give you a product that is interoperable and you can define your identity with it no matter where you go. My t-shirt isn't a t-shirt. It's an, a t-shirt for your avatar that can be brought anywhere. I think creators are going to start to you know, perform in the metaverse and say, like, I want to find these curators that are bringing together amazing fan bases who trust them to bring them awesome stuff. The same way that we trust algorithms today, I think we'll start to trust individual curators to help us find experiences in the metaverse. And they'll be so much more vivid because it's not just them re- it's not them just like retweeting it and adding effectively nothing. It's them building the housing, the land, the venue surrounding a creator. So it's more of a collaboration that you're willing to pay for. Even if you've seen them perform IRL, even if you have streamed all their music before, you're getting something fundamentally unique by the interaction and the immersiveness uh, that creators can provide. What companies, metaverse companies specifically, are you excited about right now? And what problems are they solving? What products are they building to solve those problems that you think are important and exciting? Um, So I think that Genies is a really fascinating company. They make uh, an, an independent avatar system where you can make you know this little virtual version of yourself, and they're starting to do partnerships with big clothing manufacturers like Gucci, so you can actually buy clothing that is attached to your avatar, and the idea is that you'll be able to be that avatar across the metaverse. So basically building the underlying identity infrastructure for the, the metaverse. I think you're seeing companies like um, RTFKT, um, which makes the this, they're making like clothes, they're making like digital clothing and, you know, all of these, like they're making NFTs that are effectively like wearables for the metaverse uh, that I think is really, really fascinating. Um, You're seeing places like Decentraland where, you know, people are already starting to like take this concept of like owning land in the metaverse and building something special on it. So you attract attention and then you could sell tickets to the space that you create and curate. Um, That's that's already starting to happen. I think that's a a really exciting space. Um, I think things like Friends with Benefits which is a uh, 
a sort of social, a crypto social group where you have to own a certain number of their tokens to be admitted into their chat room and be able to access all these these special events that they hold and they get access to early drops of, of other NFTs and products. And it's basically the sense of like, you believe in this community enough that you invest in it. But if the community continues to grow in demand for its ownership, you own a part of it. You own effectively equity in it. And if at any point you want to sell your tokens to somebody else, you can earn a profit on your like belief in a community early in the early days. And then things like, uh, like fractional, which is not exactly metaverse, but it's the sense that, you know, there are crypto assets that are too big, too expensive that individuals can't own them. Like most individuals can't. If you want to buy a crypto punk and you don't have a quarter million dollars, at least you cannot own one right now. But fractional will allow you to buy 1% of of a crypto punk and feel like you have an ownership stake in these new movements that are are growing and that you can participate in the financial success of something that you believe in, even if you don't have the startup capital to be able to buy, buy something outright. So it's democratizing access to some of the most sought after assets in the world. Like if you could own a, a one one hundredth of a percent of the Mona Lisa, like, and you believe that the Mona Lisa was going to grow in value over time, you might want to buy that piece. And then not only do you get to have the financial return, but you get to say that you own a piece of the Mona Lisa. It's like if people, I think that sense of ownership is, is coming back. And it's fascinating because for a long time, I believed that we were moving towards an experiential culture and away from a materialistic culture. That because we suddenly had devices to capture experiences, social networks to share those experiences, the rise of mindfulness, of you know, uh, wellness and yoga and meditation, all helping wake people up to the fact that like owning a bunch of things doesn't make you happy. It's experiences and making memories that makes you happy. But now we are moving back into this crypto materialistic culture where buying or owning something is an experience and it unlocks experiences in the future. Owning an NFT means that you have access to a community, which might give you access to new communities. And suddenly a possession and an experience are almost intermingled. And so I think you're going to start to see people also representing their identity digitally through the things they own. And I think that you know we're moving somewhat back towards materialism because materialism and experience aren't that dissimilar when it's all digital. What sorts of jobs do you see opening up in the future for creative people in this world, in this vision of the future? I mean, I think there's an enormous room for COOs, for creators. There are tons of people who love art, who love to make art, but aren't artists themselves. And, you know, Jeff Koons, the, the famous you know, contemporary artist, he employed huge teams that helped him make his massive installation art pieces. And that, those are good jobs. Those are good like, middle class jobs, effectively. And so I think the creator middle class, I don't think comes from necessarily just helping every single person become a creator and earn a little bit of money, but it's in helping create the uh, the talent infrastructure to help the virtuoso creators focus on what they love doing. There's room for people who just specialize in like ombudsman for the, the like decentralized world of like people that you can hire for your, for your DAO that will help you sort out your interpersonal problems so that you can get back to being productive with your decentralized organization. Um, I think mental health providers specifically for creators is a huge space. So I recently started uh, taking a writing course from David Perel, this amazing writing coach called Rite of Passage. And, you know, we did a, a private session together and it was the first time I think I really felt like I could just 
talk to somebody about the problems that I have as a creator with some sense of scale. And like just having somebody who I was I was paying to talk to me, but who also really got the like the kind of problems that only other creators have. It was so therapeutic. Josh, <laughs> come on, man. Give us the scoop. Give us the juice. Tell us one of the problems, one of the things that you've been afraid to say publicly, but that you had in this discussion with this creator coach, something that was just felt like a nice problem to have that maybe you don't even want to talk about. But like, it's just fucking true. One creator to another, I could give you five. But what's, <laughs> what's one of yours? I mean, the biggest, like, creator nice problem to have for me but is still a very legitimate problem is that like now that I have 10,000 email subscribers, I'm scared to publish to them. That like I feel like every subscriber I add raises the bar of quality that I have to hit before I feel comfortable hitting that publish button. And that means that I create less and less as I grow my audience larger and larger. And, you know, it took talking to someone who really said that, like, you know, like, if they don't want what you make, screw them. You're just filtering down to a more dedicated audience that does love you that you'll finally feel comfortable towards. So if that means churning half of your audience because they don't actually like the real you, they like some mental perception they had of me that they're not actually getting from what I publish, that's their problem, not mine. Like, just keep making. Josh, this was amazing. Thank you so much for coming in. And this was incredibly informative and wonderful and you clearly have such a broad perspective on so many industries i couldn't be like more happy for you moving from journalism to vc getting that breadth getting to add value to founders in a new kind of way getting to actually talk about product and markets with folks who are building for it uh and um, i'm just i yeah it's really cool to talk with you thank you for joining me here thank you from every creator in the world i really appreciate you as a founder and as a creator yourself thank you to everyone for listening and a huge thank you to josh for your wisdom and insights into the future of the creator economy at patreon we're actively recruiting the best product designers and engineers and builders in the industry so if you want to help us build the future of the creator economy please head over to patreon.com careers and if you like this episode you want to hear more you can listen to our last episode with creator economy pioneer lee jin and you can subscribe to hear future episodes wherever it is that you're listening to podcasts. Huge thanks to the producers, Dave King and Joe Smith, and also the Patreon team internally helping with this podcast. Brian, John, Kate, Nikhil, Sandeep, Veronica, and Will. So much gratitude to that crew for making this podcast happen. Okay, everyone. See you next week. Thanks for listening.